0: Hello, how you doing? It's great to be back at Echo. It's been several months since I've been here, but I'm glad to finally be able to get back. Uh, Last night was over at the the Christmas cantata thing, and I was talking to Nick and Aaron Kennedy, and I'm like, okay, so you guys, the one Sunday I'm coming here, you guys are gone. You know, that's not fair to me. I've been looking forward to seeing them. They're good friends, and we got to know them when we were living where Nick works over there for several months. I gotta say, I feel really welcome this morning. Uh, when I got here, you know, John Burke was telling me how you guys went to great expense and effort to put uh, two, you know, bigger-than-life-size replicas of me on the stage, right there and right there. I mean, Pastor Phil might think that they're about, like, you know, something to do with the ballet, ballet thing, but but I know better. Appreciate it a lot. <laughs> we were missionaries before we came, uh, came back here to Maryland, and so... Traveled around all over the United States and then all, all around different parts of Europe and the world. Lived in Bulgaria and uh, saw a lot of interesting things. But I never saw like Candyman guys, gingerbread guys on the stage. It's making me hungry. Okay, all right, we better get started here because I'm going to make you hungry too, and that's not good. Well, uh, as uh, Pastor Phil mentioned, we're continuing our series on the mothers of Jesus. Um, if th- if this is your first time or maybe you've only been able to hit one of the other other messages, or if you've been here all, all through so far, you can see it's uh, it's kind of a soap opera, isn't it? <laughs> Some people are like, I didn't know there was all this drama in Jesus' family tree. Uh, the story of Tamar, as Pastor Phil said, just like, wow, that's in the Bible? And then uh, Rahab, you know, the prostitute who God used in an amazing way, and, and God's grace uh, seen in her life as well. Uh, today we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read on in the, this family tree of Jesus. And it says, in, in when Matthew gives that, in Matthew chapter 1, he says, Now Jesse was the father of King David. Everybody heard of King David? Okay, right? Kind of the, the guy, the man after God's own heart, God used to kind of bring his kingdom there. And uh, David was the father of Solomon. And then the, the, the version that we use sometimes says, Whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. So we're going to talk today about Bathsheba, the widow of, of Uriah. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that uh, during these moments that we've got together, that you would really be with us here, that your presence would be with us. Open our ears and our minds to hear what you're trying to say today through your word, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. All right. Well, let's read. So I'm going to read through Second Samuel chapter 11. It's in your notes there. so grab those sermon notes, okay, and be ready to just kind of read along, you know, yourself as I'm, I'm reading aloud. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, you got the picture there? It's a time when kings go out to battle, and where's David? Is he out at the battle? He's in Jerusalem. So what happens? Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. This is beginning to sound a little dangerous here. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, well, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for, from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house And the woman conceived, the Bible tells us, and then she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay? If you ever want to start your own soap opera, and you're not sure what material to use, there's a lot here in the Bible you can use. Because that's not something, that's not a story you want to tell, like, you know, little three-year-old kids about. Let's read the story about King David and Bathsheba. Okay? So David said word to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked, how, How's Joab doing? And how the people were doing, how's the war going? And David said to Uriah, Well, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. You know, walking on sandals on dusty roads. But also it's kind of a kind of slang term for them to go go see your wife. Okay? Go wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, like in the representation of of God there among these people. The Ark in Israel and Judah dwell in, in tents and booths, and my lord Joab, and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is quite a guy, isn't it? And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. He ate in his presence and drank so that he made Uriah drunk. And in the evening... He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David thought, if I get him drunk, maybe he'll go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, David wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die." And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were some valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David were among the people that fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when this mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All right, now that's quite a story, isn't it? All right, turn to the second page of your notes. We need to go back and look at the cast of characters and understand what's going on here. Okay? This is a story that's got a lot to it. All right, it seems at first it's kind of, well, it's a pretty bad story, isn't it? But it's kind of, it's kind of straightforward, it seems like. But actually, there's some subtle things here, like with all the stories we've been looking at in this series that we can really learn something from, some things that are a little behind the written word. Let's look at our cast of characters. Well, first we've got Bathsheba, all right? We've seen some things, what's happened to her in her life. We'll come back to Bathsheba in a minute. But then we've also got Eliam, or otherwise known as Emil, Bathsheba's father, right? Because when David says, hey, who is she? One of them says, oh, this is the daughter of, of Emile, right? What should that mean to David? Well, we know from God's word, Emil is one of David's mighty men, one of the guys who fought all the way through the days when Saul was the king, and David was supposed to be the king, right? And David fought many, many battles. He was an amazing leader in battle, right? And God blessed him and used him, and then appointed him as king. And Mel was one of the guys who was loyal to David, even when they were living in caves, hiding out for their life, okay? So this is the daughter of one of the closest people, to David, one of the people he owes a debt to, in a sense. We're also going to have Uriah. We've looked at him a little bit, Bathsheba's husband, also one of David's mighty men. We're going to talk about David, the king of Israel, kind of the central character here in the story. We'll talk about Bathsheba's brother, Makir, and then Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel. Let's think about this story. Imagine that you and I are maybe like great-great-great-grandchildren of Bathsheba, and one day, you know, as we're getting older, we say, hey, mom, dad, tell us about people, you know, we were descended from, you know, anyone have any family stories? You don't have to tell them now, okay? <laughs> I come from a long line of peasant farmers, you know, sometimes you meet someone, they go, oh, do you have anyone famous, you know, in your family? And I'm like, no. My dad's family came from Greece where they were farmers, and they worked in factories, you know, and some of them opened restaurants because they're Greek. It's what great people do, you know. And my mom's family came from Canada where they were farmers. And they came and got jobs in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, by the way, I, I really can't help it being a Patriots fan. I was born there. You know, I, I born, you know, 15 miles from where they play. And, and the first year I followed them, they were 2-14. and 14, And they lost twice to the Baltimore Colts that year. You know, that's the first time. So, but, you know, the fact that they're really good now, you know, God knows how to bless people. Just thought I'd throw that in there. You know, it's not in my sermon notes, Pastor Phil. Uh, I just felt I need to get that out of the way there. I kind of forgot to do that. All right, let's talk about the family history. Well, Eliam, her father. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Eliam. He was one of David's money men. We know that. But we do know this. Eliam gave a name to his daughter. Now, when a, a Hebrew child would be born, the parents would name the child, right? And Bathsheba's name originally wasn't Bathsheba. It was Bathsheba, okay? And Bathsheba means... Daughter of my prosperity. So think about it. Eliam is one of David's mighty men. They lived in caves and they, you know, all those things that happened. But now they've they've kind of got it made, right, at some point. David's on his way up. We see that all the way through, uh, you know, Samuel's stories, the first chapters, how the rise of David and then David becomes the king. Eliam would have been probably a frequent visitor to the palace, you know, as one of David's mighty warriors, even if he's on in a few years now. You know, he's still got that status. And so when the, when the baby is born, Eliam names his daughter, Daughter of My Prosperity. But when she gets around 12 or 13, you know, the uh, Jewish children, they'll have their, their bar or bat mitzvah, and often the parents would give a new name to their child. The first name was like what they were feeling when the baby was born. But this new name has something to do with, with the child's character. And it's interesting, Eliam picks the name Bathsheba for what had, the girl had been known as Bathsheba, daughter of my prosperity. Now she's daughter of the covenant or daughter of the oath. So what does that tell you something about Bathsheba? Is she someone who's running around doing the wrong thing all the time? I don't think so because Eliam names her after the law of Moses, the thing that all Israelites are trying to align their life with God's will. Basically, he's calling Bathsheba daughter of God's will. That's interesting, isn't it? What do we know about Eliam? Well, we know this. First, he might have been focused at material prosperity, daughter of my prosperity. But in the long run, what was most important to Eliam? Spiritual prosperity, spiritual things, following after the will of God. All right, let's go on. Let's talk about Uriah, Bathsheba's first husband. I don't know about you, but when I hear and read about Uriah, it's hard to think of a more noble guy, a more loyal guy soldier here he is a soldier in david's army one of david's mighty men but here he is brought back to you know from the front lines where they're camping out in the fields besieging the city he's brought home and he is within spitting distance of his house where his wife is and the and the, the king wines and dines him and all that kind of stuff says hey go home he's got permission from the king himself but what does uriah do he's loyal back to the commander of his army joab he's loyal to his fellow soldiers back there you know, suffering for the good of Israel. And we he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. Even when the king tells him a second time. So we look at Uriah. He's known as Uriah the Hittite. Now, the Hittites were a nationality kind of like north of Israel. They did not believe in God, okay? But Uriah the Hittite, he must have been at least a second or a third generation person who had come and become a Jew, you know, by, by religion. Why? Because his name, it, it has part of God's name in it, Okay? And someone who was a Hittite never would have given their child the name Uriah. That's a a Jewish name. All right? So even though he's known as, you know, Uriah the Hittite, this isn't some foreign mercenary who's coming there and and worships his own gods and does his own thing. This guy's a Jew. Okay? Because what happens? No matter what your ethnic origin is, the Bible tells us we can become part of the people of God. That's good, isn't it? So Uriah was loyal to his king. He was loyal to the troops. He was loyal to Joab. And isn't it interesting that when David sends Uriah back to the battlefield, he, gives, he says, give this letter to Joab, and the letter is, is Uriah's death sentence. And he gives it to Joab and goes, here you are, general. I did, you know what I'm supposed to do? How do you think Joab, felt when he opens it up from the king, you know, David, the man after God's heart, and he opens it up and says, basically, murder Uriah. One of his best soldiers. One of the most loyal awesome guys Joab has in his army. Just think about that. That's where David went in this whole situation we read here. Uriah's action shows that he was a man of priorities. He placed what his position was, what his role was in God's kingdom, he placed that as a higher priority in his life than his own personal pleasure. Something to be learned there from Uriah. It's interesting to me that in Matthew when, uh, when Matthew's given us, you know, all the, all the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus all the way down the line, it's interesting to me that he doesn't actually call her Bathsheba, you know, wife of David. It's Bathsheba, who is the widow of Uriah. And I think we're really meant to be seeing something there. Who is the guy to be emulated in this story? David or Uriah? Uriah is really the hero, isn't he? But bad things happen to him, as we saw Let's talk next about Ahithophel. That's a great name to say, by the way. It's one of those Bible names. You know, you don't see a kid go, oh, here's my son, Ahithophel, right? But it's kind of a hard name to say, Bathsheba's grandfather. But Ahithophel was an important person. He was David's most trusted counselor, okay? When David comes to the throne, all right? Now, here he's been. He's been kind of like a, a war leader, a general until this point. And now he's the absolute monarch over Israel in charge. Do you think he really knows what to do? I mean, how would you know how to be king? You need someone to be telling you. Well, you know, king, um, I I know you would have done that before, but there's actually some political considerations here, right? He needs an advisor. and Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather was so respected that in the Bible, his name is ranked even before the priests. Okay? This isn't just some guy who gives advice to the king. This is the king's right-hand man. His counsels were so wise, it was said of him in 2 Samuel, for every word spoken by Ahithophel seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. You can't get better advice than that, right? Later on in life, this is interesting, because when Absalom, David's son, one of his sons, rebels and tries to take the throne from, from David, Ahithophel turns and becomes Absalom's right hand man. So he'd served David all these years, and then he turns his son and rebels against. Why do you think he would do that? Do you think there was any hint of revenge in all's heart? Here he is. His granddaughter is taken by the king, her husband murdered, and then taken to be one of David's wives. Do you think, as the patriarch of his family, he felt ashamed at some level? I think Ahithophel was looking for revenge. And it reminds me the Bible says. Revenge or vengeance is mine. And you know, today when I think about what happened on Friday in Connecticut, I don't know about you, but I care about, there are times I want justice. Right? When you see something going on in life that's horrible, it's wrong, don't you want justice? Isn't one of the things that people hate about society today is there's too much injustice? And, and people get off from things or people don't get the punishment that they deserve. And you see something like that go on, and you go, Where, where's the justice in that? And what do people do? Sometimes we try to take justice in our own hands. In that situation in Connecticut, what can you do? You know, that's part of the horror of everything that goes on. I mean, I, I, I was working on my message on Friday when I, when I heard about it, and, and I just had to stop. I couldn't even think. I couldn't, I couldn't write anything more. I, And I said, God, you're going to have to help me here. You're going to have to speak to me. You know what the Lord said to me? He said, who's in charge? Who's God? I said, you are. But what are you doing? And he says, well, why why do I not do something about things like this? I said, I don't know, God. Why don't you do something about this? And he says, because I'm waiting. I'm giving time for people to make their choices, whether they're going to follow themselves and their own will, or they're going to come and, and come to know me and have relationship with me. The Bible says God is not slow, as some count slowness in his coming. Why hasn't Jesus returned again? He came first at Christmas. That's what we're about to celebrate, right? Why hasn't he come back again? Because he's given time for people all around the world, every person to have a chance, an opportunity to make a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And in that time period, bad things do happen. But the Lord says, when I come, I will come with justice He's going to come with a sword, and God's going to bring justice to this world. Ahithophel tried to take matters in his own hands and bring revenge on David. And what happened? God worked in a miraculous way and closed Absalom's ears. So he couldn't even hear the advice of this guy who everyone always said, when he speaks, it's like God's speaking. Absalom says, no, I'm not going to do what you say. And when Ahithophel saw that, he realized he was wrong. He was lost. And what did he do? Did he repent? No. He goes home and he takes his own life. That's the end of Bathsheba's grandfather. Where did revenge lead him? To death. Folks, I want to tell you this morning, God has a better way for you and I. Even when things happen against us, God desires a different way. I want to talk to you about that in a few minutes here. All right. We saw Epithophel, saw how he rebelled against David. Let's talk about Makir, David's not David, Bathsheba's brother. We don't see much in the Bible about him, but we see him two times. I wanted to give you a sense, the flavor of the family that Bathsheba came from. Because that's going to help us understand her and what happens to her and what she does with it. Okay, Makir is seen twice in the Bible. After David becomes the king, after Saul dies, right, everybody in the kingdom's like, Saul, oh yeah, we always hate him. We always thought he was terrible. We don't want anything to do with his family. In fact, you know, let's go and beat on Saul's family and kill them just to show David how much we always hated them, okay? And, Saul, and David's like, no, no, wait a second. That's not what I want. And he's like, how can I show people I don't want to punish Saul's family? He was, a, 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 he was appointed by God himself, you know, and he lost his way, and then God replaced him. And so David said, you know what? Is there anyone of Saul's family that I can show kindness to who's still alive? And they go, oh, well, you know, um, Saul had a son who was crippled named Mephibosheth, and, and, and he's living in the house of Makir. Eliam's son, you know? And so they said, oh, send for Methuselah, and David comes and he he, he lavishes his presence on him, and he says, I'm always going to take care of him. Think about it. Saul's dead. David's now the king. And where is King Saul's only remaining son? Living in the house of Makir. Do you think that was a little dangerous for Makir? To be friends, protecting someone who could be an alternate heir to the throne instead of David? But Makir shows loyalty to Methuselah and takes care of him. Later on, when David has to leave the city because Absalom's rebelling against him and he's in danger of being killed himself and he flees into the mountains, here he is with his, his troops, right? And they've got no food, all right? They're hungry, they've been traveling very hard. And who sends them food? Who do you think sends them the food? Makir, Bathsheba's brother, is one of three guys who sends a whole caravan of food and supplies to David in his hour of need. When it looked like to everybody Absalom was taken over and David was going to be killed or at least sent out in exile, who's the friend of the, the one who's friendless? Mekir, Bathsheba's brother. Can I tell you something about the family there? Can I tell you something about him and his character? That he did what he thought was right and stood by people, even if it wasn't popular? I talk to my girls about that. It's not always like that in school. It's not always like that in life, is it? Something to follow there. Mekir. Now let's talk about David we mentioned already, the Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart. But in what we just read, at that one moment, he breaks over half of the Ten Commandments in one minute. In fact, if you think about it, the Ten Commandments, I wrote them down. Let me read them to you. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He lived a lie. He stole Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He murdered her husband. He dishonored his parents, of course, in doing all this. And the remaining four commandments are all about honoring God with your life. None of that honors God. So in a sense, you could say, in a minute, David broke all Ten Commandments. So the guy, the Bible says, was the man after God's heart, breaks all the Ten Commandments. You've got to explain this to me. How does that happen? Someone who everyone look up to as a moral example, you know, in our lifetimes, have we seen lots of moral examples blow it? Yeah. We, could, we know people who once were living a great life, perhaps, and maybe a very moral life. But something happens, and their life, they fall apart, and they turn away from God. They turn away from anything that's good. I went to Bible school. A guy was one of my roommates in Bible school. Hasn't been in a church in the last 15 years. How do I know that? because he he's, he's uh, messaged me on Facebook and told me about it. He is now one of the people advocating for gay marriage uh, throughout the Northeast. He's a practicing homosexual. Uh, he's lived with uh, probably, he told me, over 20 or 30 different guys since when I knew him. Once he was going to be a preacher. How do, you, how do you go from there to there? How did David go from being a man after God's own heart to this situation here? I think it's uh, something worth thinking about. Let's Let's talk for a minute about this. Does the Bible give us principles that if we follow them, they'll be good for us? Right? Okay? Let's look at one of them. Deuteronomy 17 says this. The king, now this is not talking about any particular king. This is a general principle in the Bible. That whenever Israel has a king, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. David, who once had lived in a cave now was a king living in his own palace. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 5, after moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. At this point, when he takes Bathsheba as his wife, from what best we could estimate from the Bible, he has eight wives and over ten concubines. Is that a righteous godly leader? Or is that someone who's got a sex problem? Can we just be honest about this? I mean, no, we talk about Bible stuff sometimes, and we kind of, like, put this cloak of, like, aura of, like, righteousness about all the stories, and we try to, like, best-case scenario on what we're reading. But isn't it a reality? David's got a problem? I mean, right, right? Isn't it—is that a problem that, like, never happens today? Well, I mean, people today don't have, like, ten concubines and eight wives. But is there any problem in our society with sex? I mean, that's all you see. You know, what do they say about advertising? Sex sells. I lived in Eastern Europe for a number of years, okay? When I was driving around in Eastern Europe, I couldn't look at any of the billboards because they were pornographic, all right? So here are my girls, you know, we're driving around, and, she, and my daughter's like, what's that all about? You're like, okay, well, <laughs> how do I explain that, you know? We live in a society that is obsessed with sexual things. Is there anything in the life of David that might give us some hints there how this works against us and what we should do differently? Since I asked the question, I'll tell you the answer is yes! Okay? (laughs) Let's ask this question. Why is David even looking at Bathsheba? Why is he even there? He's supposed to be out in a battle, right? Here instead he's in Jerusalem. What's he doing getting up from his bed in the afternoon? He just had a nap. Doesn't he have any king things to do? Right? Okay. What's he doing out there in his palace looking around? Is he looking at the beautiful buildings? Or is he looking for something? And he sees someone. and He goes, oh, wow, look at that. Yeah, hey. Who's she? Right? And he says, oh, find out who she is. What is he even looking for? You know, Jesus says in the Bible, if you look at someone that way, you've committed adultery in your heart. David's already guilty of adultery in God's eyes. And he goes on and he goes and he acts on the deed. Now the Bible doesn't tell us anything about Bathsheba's role or her reaction to David. But the Bible gives no hint that she, had any, she was a willing participant in anything that goes on here. There's nothing that says anything against Bathsheba anywhere in God's word. In fact, the terms rape, coercion, misuse of power, seduction, sexual harassment... Never mind adultery or treachery or betrayal or murder; those are words that we get from this passage, and this is what begins what I would want to call the moral fall of King David. To this point, David has lived a blessed life; everything's been good for David. From this point on, everything is difficult and horrible. Terrible things happen in his life. After this point, we see in Second Samuel chapter twelve, Nathan the prophet comes. And confronts David. Let's look at those uh, verses there. He gives a story of a of a poor man who had one little ewe lamb, and then this rich man comes and takes it away from him. And and David gets so incensed here in this story, and he's like, That guy should be condemned. And in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan said to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you, king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If that hadn't been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why have you despised the word of God and done this horrible deed? You have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife as your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. And that happens all throughout David's life. I will give your wives to another man. That happens in in Absalom's time. He will go to bed with them in public view. I mean, this is amazing. Judgment from the Lord in conjunction. It's totally in proportion to what David's done. You did that secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. You won't die. For the sin, but because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, the child will die. Now, I mean, it's one of those things. You ask, "Why in the world did that happen that way? Why did this child die?" And you know, there's no good answer for that. But I will say this: when we get to heaven someday, I believe that all the unborn children—you know, God created them and knew them before they were even in their mother's womb. I think we're going to see that we're going to be there in heaven with them. The people that God designed them to be and purposed for them to be. So we'll see this child. This is a pretty awesome sermon, isn't it? You're like, "Wow, I didn't know we get that today." When Nathan comes to David. Now here's David, he's fooled himself. He's walked through this whole thing and fallen in this sin. What happened to David? He saw He asked, he sent, and he indulged himself. And that's a principle for us today. Evil tries to entice you and I to consider an idea. Then it urges us to investigate that idea. Go check it out on the internet. And then it allures us to yield to the temptation to indulge ourselves. That's what happened to David. And the man after God's own heart was blinded in his heart. Blinded in his mind. He had no idea what he'd done. And God brought... A true picture of what he'd done. And David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. And we see in Psalm 51, David's transparent uh, repentance. You can put that on the screen. David cries out, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. He goes on in verse 14, forgive me for shedding blood. He, he owns up to the murder, God who saves. I will sing joyfully of your forgiveness. He says, you did not desire a sacrifice. You did not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant spirit. And we see in these verses that David recognized what he'd done, and, and he cries out to God in repentance. And what we see here in David's life, our, our point I want to make, the first of two points, is that repentance is, And forgiveness are necessary. If you've got a pen or a a pencil in your notes, the fill in the blank is the word necessary. When you and I have fallen short of God's will, and David had fallen very, very far short of God's will, we have got to turn away from what we've done. We can't sweep it under the carpet. We can't ignore it like it never happened. We've got to repent, and that word means to turn away. And we've got to receive and offer forgiveness. Forgiveness is not optional. We see this in Psalm 51. David's heart, once he realizes what he's done, is to turn away from what he's done in repentance. But we also see that when you and I fall short of God's will for our lives, there are consequences. Wouldn't it be great if there were no consequences of doing anything wrong? You know, I remember when I was a kid, I'd get caught doing something. I'd be, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't punish me, because you can see I'm sorry. And mom or dad would be like, oh, yeah, that's not how it works, kid. And there'd be consequences. Ouch. Okay? For David and Bathsheba, they were deep, serious, long-lasting consequences. Like what? The first son dies. David's future reign as king is marked by rebellion after rebellion from his own children. His family will experience sins like rape, incest, murder, rebellion, destruction. All things, seeds that David sowed in his own life in that one sin. For the rest of his life, he reaps those consequences. When you and I fall short of God's will, we turn back to God in repentance, we experience God's marvelous gift of forgiveness. But there can still be consequences. We start in repentance, we need to continue in forgiveness. What is forgiveness? When someone has wronged you, what happens? They owe you. We might say that, hey, you owe me, you did this to me. What we're saying really is there's a debt here that needs to be paid. You owe me. Forgiveness is to say, you have hurt me, and you owe a debt to me, but I will pay that debt myself. I will forgive you. Now, the Bible talks about forgiveness. That's something that you and I want, isn't it? We want forgiveness. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Forgiveness is to free that person from the penalty for a sin by paying the price yourself. And the ultimate example of that, if you've made the decision to follow Christ, and you've experienced that. Because the Bible says that Jesus came from heaven to earth to bring that force. Ephesians 4 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. You know, one day Peter, the apostle, came to Jesus and he says, Lord, if someone you know, sins against me, I've got to forgive them. How many times do I need to do that? Like, uh, you know, and Peter's being generous. He's like, Seven times? And what does Jesus say? Seven times 70. Is Jesus saying count? He's saying no matter how many times someone hurts you or I, our responsibility as people who have been forgiven by God of all of our sins is to offer that forgiveness to others. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, we pray this, Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, many people in life would love to receive forgiveness, but offering it is another thing entirely. And I'm here to tell you today, when we sin or when we experience someone sinned against us, repentance is necessary? Yes. But forgiveness is just as necessary. Okay? Are we okay? Doing all right? All right, good. Suffering is involved in paying the cost of that. Did Bathsheba understand the relationship between her husband's death? And King David taking her? I think she probably did. How do you think Bathsheba felt? One day, she's living a a good life. She's got a house. Her husband's a very honored man in the kingdom. And in a moment, all of that is taken away from her. And now she's one of David's wives. Her life ruined. Her reputation trashed. And the child that comes out of this union dies. The second thing we learn here is repentance and forgiveness are necessary, yes, but if we will do them, they bring to us freedom and restoration. That's the second fill in the blank. Freedom and restoration. You know, people call what Jesus coming to earth, what happens here at Christmas, what Jesus does on the cross, that's a, one of the words we use for that is we call that the gospel. And what that word, that's really a, an English word that means a, kind of the good word, right? Good news. And what is the good news? Is that no matter what anyone has ever done, God says if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news, isn't it? How many of you know we don't want to receive what we deserve? I don't ever want to say to God, hey, God, give me what I deserve. Because that will be like, right? No, we don't want that. We want God's forgiveness. We want freedom. But when that freedom comes to us, we, turn, have to bring restoration to those around us. When confronted with a sin, David repented. What did that look like? We saw in 2 Samuel 12, David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. What happens? The first child dies, but then David comes and takes Bathsheba as his wife, and David comes to her and comforts her, and later as she becomes his wife, she becomes pregnant, and they have a second child. Now Nathan, think about this. The prophet who'd come and confronted David's sin and said, you're the man who's done this horrible thing against God. God sends Nathan the second time and says to David and Bathsheba, your child is accepted by God. That's what Jedediah means. Imagine, as you think of a, a mother who had lost this tragedy, of all these tragedies that have happened in her lives, but when she holds baby Solomon, baby Jedediah, his name, she didn't pick out that name. David didn't pick out that name, Jedediah, God himself gave the baby the name, accepted by the Lord. With all the things that are going to happen in David's life and in Bathsheba's life from here on, all the challenges and difficulties, every time they look at that child, they can say, this child has a purpose and a plan that God has given. This child is accepted by God. And you and I today, as children of God, as we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, guess what? We become sons and daughters of God. And the Lord gives us this name as well. You and I are accepted by the Lord. We are accepted by the Lord. People may say all kinds of things about us at different times. People may accept us. People may reject us. But the Lord says today, if you're my child, I accept you. Imagine in Bathsheba's heart, as she's now married to David, the man who murdered her husband, how she must have had to walk through restoration and forgiveness. You know, it might have been easier for her because David had repented, but do you think it was easy? I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly what Bathsheba thought, but as we look through her life, I want to tell you two things in closing here, real quick. At the end of his life, one of David's other sons, Adonijah, he rebels and sets himself up as king. So Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, hey, do you know what's going on here? And Bathsheba comes into David's presence. Now in those days, you know, you just don't walk into the king's presence. Oh, hey, king, how you doing, right? You have to be accepted into the king's presence. Maybe if you read the book of Esther, you can see another picture of that, okay? And Bathsheba walks in David's presence. David accepts her. Bathsheba tells him, do you know Adonijah's rebelling against you to be king? And then Bathsheba says something to him. She calls him king. At this time, uh, David had kind of like, he was, he was very old, and he kind of was very passive and wasn't acting like the king. And Bathsheba comes in, and she bows to him on her knees. She kneels. She says, O king who lives forever. She treats him with great respect and honor. She tells him what's going on, and she reminds him, Hey, you had said, you know, our son Solomon, Jedidiah, accepted by the Lord, that he would be the king that would follow you. And yet Adonijah is doing this terrible thing. And, and this, you can see that in this passage, there's a depth of relationship here between David and Bathsheba. And David kind of like comes to life and becomes that king that he's, you know, has been before. And he starts giving orders. And, 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 and Nathan comes in and consults with him. And then, and then David says, bring Bathsheba back here. Right? And so Bathsheba comes back in and uh, the king says, as sure as the Lord lives who has rescued me from every danger, your son, really our son Solomon, will be the next king, will sit on my throne this very day, just as I vowed to you before the Lord, the God of Israel. And so we can see that, this, that over the years, these two human beings whose relationship began so horribly that they came together in a relationship of respect and honor that in this crisis deals with the situation in a way that then Solomon is placed on the throne in an amazing way. And it's interesting to me as I think about Solomon and his mother, Bathsheba. You know, the Jewish rabbis, according to Jewish tradition, I don't know if you've ever read, anyone ever read Proverbs chapter 31? This is what it says. It says, Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her, and she will greatly enrich his life. Do you know who wrote that? Well, in the Bible it says King Lemuel. But according to archaeology, we have no idea who this was. Who was King Lemuel? And some people say, well, maybe he was a king from somewhere else. But according to the Jewish rabbis, they say, no, 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 this King Lemuel, this is really actually another name for Solomon, and that Solomon wrote this about Bathsheba. Now read it in that light. Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She's more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her. Who could David trust throughout the rest of his life? He always had Bathsheba. She will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. Verse 28, her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. That's what happened to David, right? He saw and was enticed. Charm is deceptive, and beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. Reward her, the writer says, for all that she has done. Let her deeds publicly declare her praise. What's the results of David's repentance of reconciliation and forgiveness from Bathsheba, what happens? Solomon, their son, becomes the king in the line of, that becomes and results in Jesus the Messiah. The Son of God comes from heaven, is born as a baby. And this is the family tree of Jesus because forgiveness was offered, because reconciliation took place. You know, it's not always possible to bring reconciliation in this life. Sometimes there are people, they don't want to, reconcile with us they may have hurt us and damaged us in some way they may be gone they may be dead or they may not have anything to do with us but i'm here to tell you today that forgiveness is always necessary and god says if you and i at this time of year god came from heaven to earth to bring forgiveness to you and i if we will walk in that forgiveness for some of us today you may have someone in your family or in your life who you need to forgive, who's hurt you deeply, maybe repeatedly over the years. And the Lord gives us a story like this to say that out of incredible sin and damage, God is great enough that he can make something honorable and beautiful in your life. That person may never change. There may not be an opportunity for reconciliation. But God says today, I can work in your life And for us today, for many of us today, there's corners of our lives where there's people, if we'll be honest with God, that we have not forgiven. And the Lord says today, for this Christmas, he wants to give you an amazing present. Freedom and restoration and liberty in him. Does that sound good to you today? If that's you today, will you bow your heads with me? Perhaps you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to come and and, and to experience the forgiveness that he has for you. As I said a few moments ago, the Bible says if we will confess our sins to him, that we know we are not as righteous as we think we are. He is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us for everything we've ever done. Today, if that's you, you can make the decision right now and say, Lord, I des- Jesus, I desire to make you the Lord of my life. I desire to walk in your ways to know you To have a relationship with you, Lord, all the days of my life. That you will never leave me, you'll never forsake me, but you will be with me today in this life and forever. For others today, you need to forgive someone and begin that process of restoration or perhaps even of reconciliation with, with a family member or friend. If that's you right now, I invite you to give that situation and that hurt to the Lord. Jesus, you know what this feels like. As you were on the cross and they were crucifying you, you looked down on those who had hurt you, and you said, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Lord, I pray that you would give us that same heart of what we've received from you, and that we would offer that forgiveness this Christmas time to someone. And Lord, for all of us, I'm reminded of what this story really shows us, that we could be walking a straight path one day. And if we're not careful, the enemy can come in and entice us and bring us to a place we never thought we'd be. God, I pray for each person, each family represented here today, that God, for Echo Community Church, that you would make us into a people who are careful at what we see with our eyes, who are careful with what we think about and what we do, For God, we desire to live our lives for you and to honor you with all we say and do. And we can do all of this because of what you've done for us on the cross. And we say, Lord, that's the greatest Christmas present (laughs) ever. You sent your son. We pray this all in in his name, in the name of Jesus. And we say amen.